You are listening to a message from Thrive Community Church, a church located in Southwest Florida. For more info, visit us at thrive-fl.org. We're going to start probably where you don't expect in this Genius of Jesus series. You'd think we'd start maybe at the beginning, you know, like with a word from John chapter, in the beginning was the word and a word was with God. Start kind of grandiose on a great scale or at least with his birth and kind of go chronological through his life or with his first big teaching, boom, and a big splash of a miracle. But instead we're starting where nobody else was. (laughs) No other human being was with him during this time. And it's a time of private testing before his public ministry. And I think that's where we're going to see, of all places, we're going to see what really moves him, what really is his focus and his goal and the genius behind it through what's called the temptation in the wilderness. So we're reading now in um, the Gospel of Matthew chapter 4. You can also see this is also occurs in Luke chapter 4 and also just a short snippet in the Gospel of Mark in chapter 1. Just a real, but this is a longer version. So there's three times that the temptation comes up and is dealt with in one version or another. So we're going to read in Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Man, I would get hungry a lot sooner, but um, okay. And the tempter came and said to him, "If, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Okay, that's our text today kind of low-key in one sense, Um, nobody else was there. Nothing much productive seems to be going on through 40 days. I've never fasted for that long, you know, that's for sure. Um, But can you imagine, this is 40 days, Jesus is in the wilderness. Notice at the beginning of this that the Spirit is the one who compels him to go out in the wilderness, and he's there in the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights, fasting, doing Nothing. Do you understand what I mean? It's kind of seems like aimless, purposeless. He's not being productive. He's not writing a book. He's not, you know, you don't see him building anything. He's not doing anything. And yet it is here. Isn't that true in our lives too? When you're alone, when nothing much is happening, when you don't see anything, you know, like, wow, I've got this goal or anything going on, when it's just Emptiness, wilderness, not much happening, that's when you get down to the core of who you are, what you're about, 
where things are going. That's kind of what's going on here. We're finding here, when everything's stripped away from Jesus, there's no crowds around him, he's not doing any activities. I think we're finding here who he is, what he's really about, how he's going to define himself, and what's going on here is going to determine the rest of his ministry as well. We get it stripped down so we get kind of the inner core rather than any of the other accoutrements along with it, and then we question what's really Jesus about. We're going to find that out in this text. This series, genius, you've heard that term before, it's genius, wow, that's genius. Um, I looked up the definition in Merriam-Webster and elsewhere, and many times it has to do with intellectual capacity, but it's not just that. It's also originality. It's also um, a penchant for, a direction, a focus. It's something more than simply, oh, he's genius, he's brilliant, he can do anything. That's not what we're talking about. It's much more for Jesus. The focus and the genius in his life is how he goes about being the Son of God for us. Rodney Stark wrote a book called The Triumph of Christianity. Um, And in it, the beginning, in the introduction, this is what he says. He was a teacher and miracle worker who spent nearly all of his brief ministry in the tiny and obscure province of Galilee, often preaching to outdoor gatherings. A few listeners took up his invitation to follow him, and a dozen or so became his devoted disciples. But when he was executed by the Romans, his followers probably numbered no more than several hundred. How was it possible for this obscure Jewish sect to become the largest religion in the world? Through the rest of the book, he talks about that. But that's the genius. How Jesus interacted. And we're going to see over these six, seven weeks, all the way to the resurrection, the seven weeks with the resurrection. We're going to see how he called disciples. What that call was really about. How he kind of was controversial and how he was such an original at the way he understood and interpreted the law, how everything got reinterpreted through Jesus. Everything that God had said before finds its fulfillment in Jesus and it goes in a different direction. We're going to find out as well how he empowers his disciples and send them out and the genius of it. And how these ordinary individuals, they aren't any different. Peter, John, James, it's not like, wow, they had something. They were ordinary individuals, just as messed up and broken as anybody. And yet how it revolutionized the world through this one solitary life in Jesus. That's what we're going to discover today. And maybe where we don't expect it. So we're here where Jesus enters this lonely place of the wilderness. And he is tempted three different times that we have by the devil. Hey, let's look at a little of the big picture, what it means for Jesus to be in the middle of nowhere with nothing going on and what's going on with these temptations. Because I think it's a little more than just getting some food, jumping off a building, and, um, you know, making a little genuflect to get out of some pain, okay? We're going to go into a little more of each of these temptations, but here's kind of the bigger, broader picture. Jesus is, in a sense, recapitulating. Have you ever heard that word? It's a big one. He's reworking. He's reliving everything before that human beings have done or tried. And it starts all the way back with Genesis 3 in the Garden of Eden, 
And that's where we see the first temptation. And I love this contrast, the big picture, between how Adam and Eve handled it and how Jesus does. So we've got Jesus in the desert. Adam and Eve were in the garden. Do you know the difference between a desert and a garden? Quite dramatic. So, in fact, the curse that was given to Adam was that things would turn into like desert-like with brambles and thorns and you'd be the sweat of your brow and all that stuff. So Jesus enters the picture and goes into the wilderness to reverse the curse. Okay? So Adam and Eve are in the garden, Jesus is in the desert. Adam and Eve have plenty of food to eat. And they were told in the garden, you can eat anything from these thousands of trees and plants, just this one, don't eat it. Okay? Everything else is good. Jesus has no food at all for 40 days and is called on to turn stones, because that's all that there is, into, you know, dinner rolls. Right? And then finally, the devil, the serpent, says to Adam and Eve, did God really say? And Jesus responds, Each time it is written. Fascinating, right? So what we see is Jesus is taking Adam and Eve's place, all of our place, doing what we couldn't do, what we failed to do. Nobody else has ever gotten through temptation. Everybody at some point has fallen. Everybody has messed up. Everybody has broken down. And Jesus is the only one who has seen it all the way through, not just here, but all the way through his life. And he does it for us. He battles. He does this with us. Now, a couple other passages I thought, because um, when I was reading up on these temptations and looking at them, I've seen them interpreted in different ways, and you probably can. Because So what does this all mean, you know, jumping off the temple? What does this mean to bow down and worship the dead? What does this mean to turn uh, stones into loaves of bread? Three temptations. I was surprised. I found out in other passages, there are threes as well. For instance, in 1 John chapter 2, this is what it says. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Notice there's a three, three different things that are going on in here. It's called what? The love of the flesh or the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. In other words, our appetites, our aspirations, and our self-worship. Those are the three different lines of temptation. I don't know if you know this. I know it's a weird book, Revelation, full of graphic pictures that are just like, whoa, what's going on here? It's symbolic language. And I couldn't find any artwork that was suitable for church or that wasn't totally gaudy or gross because there are three different images where blatantly, blatantly, um, John in Revelation says, this is what you face in the world. And the three different images that are brought up, this unholy trinity that comes up is the whore of Babylon, 
You understand? <laughs> the beast from the abyss and the false prophet. And what we see is that the whore of Babylon is really about our appetites, enticing us to fill them and fulfill those appetites, whatever they are. And what First John says is the desires of the flesh. And so we are enticed and lured into whatever, and we can get off track so easily with that. And most of the time when we think of temptation, we're thinking that's all there is. That's the temptation. But the false prophet is the one who comes to us and speaks words of flattery kind of marketing to us how wonderful we are, how important we are, and it's our aspirations and trying to get us to do something. And that is the desire of our eyes. Yes, that's what I want. This is the direction I want to go. This is my hope, my expectations, etc. And finally, the beast from the abyss is seen as power and might. And boy, do we have a penchant towards that in our lives where we want to be in charge and to control and tell everybody what to do. And that's kind of the pride of life. At least that's the way I'm seeing these three temptations and we all still face them today and so did Jesus. Okay? At their core, though, they all have something in common. In the life of Jesus, they're the easy route, the easy way out. The end goals, being fed, aspiring to great things, getting fan base, maybe, fame, fortune, you know. And finally, being in control or having power all the kingdoms of the world and having things under control. All those things, those goals are good, but the means to those goals is the question, right? The means to those goals. And so the devil comes to Jesus at the most the weakest place he could be at this point in time. And Jesus, he says, hey, your father is not providing for you, is he? 40 days here now. Wow. You know, here's some stones. Let's do something with them. You're hungry. Right? The first temptation kind of shows us so much, I think. I don't know if you realize this. I can't recall one place in the Gospels where Jesus takes his divine power and uses it for himself. Do you understand what I mean by that? When every time his divine power is used... Any miracle, any situation, it is always for someone else. In fact, so often he calls out when a miracle happens and says, don't tell anybody about this. He almost makes sure he pulls a rug out from under a, getting a crowd to follow him and be wowed by that. And the appetites that Jesus is facing, the appetite of taking control of his life, he says, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to listen to my father. Period. Wowing the crowds. 
You know, throwing himself off the temple, there was always a crowd around the temple. And in fact, there was at the time a rabbinical saying that the, the Messiah would be seen, at the, he'd appear at the temple, and as he comes down off the pinnacle of the temple, you will know who he is. And so Jesus could prove to everyone just how wonderful he is by making a splash and in instantly having a crowd to follow him. Instantly. And Jesus says, no, I'm not going to listen to the crowds, the flattery of human beings. I'm not looking at just getting a following. I'm looking at transforming people's lives. And so the one I am here to please and to listen to is my father alone, period. And finally, you know, gain all the power of the world. All you have to do is just acknowledge that I'm right. The devil says, you know, that the way of power, the way of control, the way of, and Jesus says, no, power and control breaks relationships. Have you ever noticed that? The more you try to control a relationship, the more it breaks down. The more you try to gain power in a a situation, the more you'd alienate. And Jesus will have none of that because what he wants more than anything else is a relationship with you, with every one of us. And he does so by staying weak, by staying in the limits of his capacity and saying, this is who I am. That's the genius of Jesus. He could have so easily gotten through those temptations himself if all he wanted to do was get them for himself. He could have easily zapped a lightning bolt down, gotten rid of the devil like that. He could have easily done any of that, but it would have never been done for you. And it would have never helped you. And we'd be stuck where we are, facing these temptations without him. This trio, this unholy trinity, I think is still around, don't you? Yeah. So our appetites are huge these days. We live in Southwest Florida. (laughs) Have you noticed how um, we have a way of cultivating appetites around here? Um, Appetites, where we are, um, you know, where do you want to go out to eat? What do you want to wear? What are you going to drive around? Where do you want to live? What do you want to do for recreation? Everything is geared towards just me, 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 fill my appetites. And somehow people think the good life is just getting all my needs met, whatever they are. And when I have my appetites fulfilled, then I am really living. And Jesus says, no. So our choice is always this. Are we going to be fed or are we going to be fathered? What do you really need? Do you need your appetites met or do you need a relationship with your heavenly father? Do you get what I mean? Deep down, we need a good, good father. And maybe you've had experience with human fathers or human male role models or human leaders of any type that it's like, ooh, I don't know if I want to be fathered. I understand that, but you're going to get a different father with this one. And that's what it says again and again in the scriptures. And Jesus says what human beings really need, what he needed, I need my father more than I need food. He's my life. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. 
So it's not simply about meeting my appetites or being filled with my consumer needs. And I would say, sorry, Freud, you got it wrong. We are not merely a conglomeration of our appetites, but we are children, children of God. We have a Father who gives, a Father who provides by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And here we have, like John chapter 1 says, here's the word of God, who goes into the desert and becomes needy himself, so he will meet every one of our needs. Isn't that amazing? That's the Father you have that gives everything. Why would we doubt it? And we also face, I think, the temptation of our aspirations, okay? We'd rather kind of be identified with a crowd following us. And if I've got a bunch of people telling me who I am, then wow, I must be somebody. But I really need to have an affirmation of my father, who said to Jesus at his baptism and who says to each of us at our baptism, who says to each of us every day of our lives, you are my beloved and you I am well pleased. You don't need to doubt that. You don't need to question that. You don't need to try to have God prove that. And so Jesus says, I'm not putting my father to the test because I already know his love for me. He has promised that is the way it is. And any, quote, proof of jumping off a temple and wowing a crowd or getting him to love me, I can't get him to love me more. Do you get that? You've got a father who loves you so much, it doesn't really, there is nothing he could do more to love you. And he affirms you every day. He will say to you again and again, you are my beloved. I am pleased with you. I want you. You are mine. And that matters more than anything else. So sorry, Facebook. (laughs) I'm not the accumulation of all the likes I get. I have a Heavenly Father who tells me who I am. And, oh, you know, the other great temptation, power. Power, 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 which is really another way of self-worship. I don't know if you realize that, but every accumulation of power is to worship me and to be in control and to seek control rather than trust my Father. Do you understand how that works? Yeah. And you realize, like I said before, anytime you try to control a situation, you end up losing a relationship. Because relationships, whether they're marriages or with children or anyone else, it's not about power and control. It can't be. If it is, it falls apart. It's always about giving and receiving freely. Jesus said, freely you have received, freely give. And the better we are at giving and receiving, relationships grow. And Jesus says, I am not going to try to control this world the way the devil would. I am not going to just try to be in charge with all power and tell everybody what to do because I do not want robots. I do not want automatons. I do not want just minions. I want a face-to-face one-on-one personal relationship with everyone. Sorry, politics. (laughs) It's not about power. 
Sorry, corporate America. We're not defined by our paycheck or our status. We are defined by a heavenly father who loves us and gives his son to us. So here's the real genius in all of this. Because it's not that fact that Jesus just gets through them for himself. It's the fact that, do you realize he went through them for you, that he went through this. He didn't need to go through any of them. He did not need to go this path at all. And he chose in the wilderness where nobody was to do what nobody could do. And he does that. He chooses to be tempted. Yes, Jesus chose to be tempted. He chose to follow his father willingly. He chose to be led by the spirit into a place of total vulnerability for you. He takes on the burden of being a human being and he understands it completely. A few weeks ago, we shared this um, Bible verse. No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with that temptation, will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. We get through temptations because we've got someone who got through temptations. He's the way out. I love how Hebrews 4 says it this way. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. I don't know what temptations you are facing. I only know mine. I don't like them. I can't believe how many times I've fallen into them. Again and again. But what this passage says, what the other passage says, is you've got somebody who understands it completely, much better than I do. Even you can have another human being who's gone through the same thing, and you have a Savior, you have Jesus, who understands it fully and completely, because he has experienced, as it says, he has been tempted in every way we are. So you might be going like, at this point in time, man, I just can't believe I did that again. I can't believe it. I can't believe I lost my temper. I can't believe I did this, did that, whatever it is, whether it's your appetites, your aspirations, or your quest for power, whatever that temptation is, in whatever way it is, to try to get away from being who you are in a sense and being dependent on your father and just relying on your father, whatever that is, and no matter how ashamed you are that you've fallen into it again, you've got someone who is never going to be ashamed of you. You've got someone who totally understands and gets it, who comes alongside of you. You've got Jesus. That's the genius. Is that amazing? That's why Christianity is so different. I just, um, I can't, I don't know how, yeah, you take Jesus out of Christianity, there's nothing. It's just religion, Right? But every other world religion that I know of will teach you techniques of how to do this, do that, you know, memorize these verses, go through this, meditate this way, follow this path. And then you have Christianity that says, I am the way, the truth, and the life in Jesus. I'm doing it all for you, and I'll walk with you through it. I am there for you. You've got, because of your brother, Jesus, you've got a father who is good to you all the time. So Romans chapter 8, 
says it this way, you do not have a spirit of slavery to fall back again in fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God and if children then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. I just want you to live in the lavish love of your Father because of Jesus. And to just know you've got a Father. You are fathered. You are adopted. You are His. You are loved. You are pleasing. He is not ashamed of you. He doesn't avoid you. He doesn't think down on you. He's been through it all. Isn't that amazing? This was in the last time that Jesus was tempted. If you are the Son of God, come down off that cross. It's all been about the cross from the beginning to the end of his ministry. It's all about taking our place. It's always suffering, and he goes through hell for you just to have you. So I guess the question today is, does he have you? Do you know what I mean? Does he have you? Are you his? Or are you kind of holding on to your appetites, trying to control your life, or living with, no, I got to have these aspirations and I'm going to do it my way. It's time to let them go, just like Jesus did in the wilderness. One-on-one, nobody else may see it, but you know, and your Father knows. So I'm going to pray that that happens for each of us. And if this is the first time that you've ever let go of these things and let God be God, we praise God for that, and I'd love to know about that. After the service, I'm here, and I'd love to hear that. And you don't have to be ashamed of it. Every one of us here in one form or another, at one time or in life or another, whether it was as a kid or as an adult or whenever it was, at some point in time, we let go and let God. And for me, it's been more than once, let me tell you. And it's, con- but still, so don't be, a- and it's never too late, like I must be, oh, I should have did this 25th. That's another way of getting away from it. Just realize today, you can let go and let God. Today, you can just say, oh, my aspirations, let those go. You've got something better for me. My appetites, could be out of control. You will feed me and you will father me. In my quest for control, give up. It's better to live out of control. So will you pray with me? Lord God, we're amazed at the genius of Jesus who went through this temptation and weakness and vulnerability and humility, doing it for us, doing what Adam and Eve didn't do, what the children of Israel never could do and what we have failed to do as well. And we thank you for that. So, Lord, we let go. We let go of our aspirations. We let go of our appetites. 
that let go of our quest for control and power, Lord. We give them to you. We give ourselves to you. Have us, Lord, completely. All this we pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen.